0: This is the second Sunday of Advent, and every second Sunday of Advent in all three of the cycles of readings in the Gospel, we're introduced to our old friend, John, don't sing jingle bells to me, the Baptist. (laughs) So my main focus in my preaching today will be on the Gospel and about his meaning And three uh, terms that we use a lot in preaching and teaching in the church, I thought I'd talk a little bit about it in some detail. One is the word incarnation. We are beginning now a switch even after week one of Advent, which was speaking of the coming of the new age, to now speaking in uh, week two and beyond uh, the coming of the birth of the Savior or of Uh, the incarnation God becoming a human being incarnation is a word that comes from the the Latin and it means in the flesh although as my morals and ethics professor at Nishota House used to say a more uh, crude but accurate translation might be in the meat incarnate you know we had some stuff from time to time in the refectory. Uh, at Neshoda House that was referred to by the students as "Carne mysterium. <laughs> so I don't think you need a Latin translation for that, do you? So I want to talk about the incarnation and to understand that the purpose of this is to reinforce Jesus' humanity. One of the ways to understand the Incarnation, uh, one of the definitions is the fulfillment of the love of God and his desire to be present among us, to live in the midst of humanity, and to walk with us. That's an affirmative understanding of the meaning of the Incarnation, God becoming a human being. Uh, Another view says that God became a human being in order to affect our salvation and that this was necessary for us to be redeemed. In this view, we once again connect to the issue raised not of God's loving action, but of God's exacting some kind of penalty for our bad deeds. So when we get to John the Baptist now in a minute, we're going to talk about two themes. One is repentance, and the other is God's judgment. Before that, you might, if when the sermon is boring, uh, and you're trying to entertain yourself in the pew and not get the church fidgets, you can open the prayer book to the back to where it says the historic documents of the Christian faith, and read the chalcedonian definition for the relationship between the humanity of Jesus and his divinity. It might surprise you to know that in the first four centuries or so of Christianity, uh, people didn't have a whole lot of trouble believing in Jesus' divinity. They had a lot of trouble believing in his humanity. And so a lot of work had to be done about the nature of this. And that statement that's in the back of the prayer book comes from the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D., which is the last of the four ecumenical councils. And it sums up in a paragraph the relationship in the person of Jesus Christ between his humanity and divinity. And it is described in a a way, uh, even though they didn't know about this then, of the DNA helix. That everything is put together in an intertwined way. So you can't separate in the person of Jesus Christ his humanity and divinity. It's all there in him. So that's why people would say in his words and in his works... We have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God, both human human and divine. So that explains in one sense how we believe that in the great tradition about uh, the humanity of Jesus. And it's very important. Uh, Here's the thing. If... I've said this many times. If we were get, to get in a time machine and get transported back to first century Palestine and uh, were able to walk up to Jesus and ask, ask him what he thought of a space program in the United States, he wouldn't know what you were talking about. He would he'd have never heard of a space capsule. So there's a lot of people who say, How in the world, if he's God, how could he not know about a space capsule? Because God knows everything, right? He was a human being. So that means you and I need to do a little bit more work on what it meant back in first century Palestine uh, when we used the word God and what it meant in the thought world, you know? We tend to have a very kind of, you know, view of, of God's sovereignty that sometimes uh, is an overreach, in my opinion. I say this not to diminish uh, the importance of the sovereignty of God or our belief that God knows each of us by name and unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. It's not inconsistent to say that. So John the Baptist today comes and says... we need to repent. He's speaking to the people of the covenant, both the religious leadership, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and all the people in the surrounding area who came to him uh, to confess their sins and to be baptized, to repent and to be baptized. There's a lot of uh, biblical scholarship over the last 40 years or so that suggests that that John the Baptist had some acquaintance with the community in Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And that some of what he was doing there may have be a reflection of the beliefs of the Essenes in some way. Jesus and John the Baptist very well may have been related. They may have been cousins. And it's always been uh, something of an embarrassment to Christians that John the Baptist baptized Jesus. It's part of the truth of the scriptures that they would be willing to report that in the text. It seems odd, but that's the truth. They they didn't avoid saying this. So John the Baptist is telling everyone to repent. For 1400 years in western Christianity we had one bible. The Latin Bible the biblia sacra the translation by saint jerome and in this passage from matthew saint jerome says as john the baptist say in his translation penitentium agite do penance instead of repent so here we had for a long time a lot of people on their knees and an armload of gladiolas trying to work something off So Luther, and some people before, Luther opens up uh, the Greek New Testament and he reads, metatoyete, repent. And he said, well, that's, that, that's something, it means something different than do penance. It means to turn your life around, to change the direction that you're looking for happiness, where you're looking for happiness. There are two words in the the New Testament that are used for repent, metanoia, which means to turn around and look at things differently, and the other word is epistrophe, we get it from Plato, who believed that the study of philosophy involved the process of looking at things in a new way. And it has in the word more of a meaning of converting yourself, changing your mind about how things operate. And so John the Baptist says to the people who come out, you need to look at your life in a new way. You need to understand God's purposes for you in a new new way. John the Baptist goes on later in the gospel to describe uh, what's going to happen to people if they continue to do what they do the religious leadership and other people, he refers to them as a brood of vipers, that they're going to receive the judgment of God. How does he understand that? Does he mean it like some Star Trek moment or in some movie that we can see now with all the special effects? Or does he mean that the history of these people are now go- is going to undergo great turmoil and difficulty? And reading the signs of the time reflect, in their view, something of the judgment of God. The medieval theologians used to describe when they talked about God's judgment uh, as God's opus alienum, his strange work, and God's mercy as his opus proprium, his proper work. So as Christian people who believe in some affirmative sense about God's saving work, God's healing work in the world, we have to say that when God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. That's what the biblical witness would suggest. There are some who would prefer it otherwise I had somebody say to me once when I was a young priest, they came out the door to shake my hand, and they said, you know, Father Brewer, you don't talk enough about how sinful we are. I said, I can do it if you want. I mean, we can just boogie on down with sinfulness. (laughs) And there's plenty of it. My grandfather had a friend who came to see him once in the office and he said, oh, I went to some church, I can't remember where it was. He said, well, what did the preacher talk about? He said he talked about sin. He said, well, what did he say? He was against it. (laughs) I am too, and I suppose you are, I certainly hope. But shall we just think about God's mercy and God's judgment and when they come together that God's mercy trumps God's judgment in that way? You know, part of the difficulty has been when we read texts like repent and do all this sort of stuff, it's been, it has been conditioned for 500 years or more by a view that my belief is conditional upon me. It's all about me and what I have to do. And when John the Baptist was speaking to the people, he had very little consciousness of or desire to emphasize the subjective individualized understanding of salvation or our role in the world and God's relationship with the world. Because he thought in collective corporate terms, like a person living in the ancient Near East. People didn't think all the time about I, 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 me, me, me. It's all been since we've decided it's all up to us to be able to do this. Or in the present culture, the triumph of the autonomous self is the absolute highest value. And it would surprise many of the voracious or vehement critics of this individualistic approach to things, this self-centeredness, that it has its roots in a certain species of evangelical Christianity that promotes the view that you're a law unto yourself with regard to your own personal belief. It's just you and your Bible, and whatever you read in it is what the interpretation is. And I don't want to talk like a member of the Roman Catholic Courier, but I've got to tell you something. You and your Bible isn't going to cut it if you want to learn anything. It isn't going to happen. You've got to have some idea about how people have interpreted these texts and what they meant when they wrote them and how we know about their uh, accuracy and how we know about their reliability and all of these kinds of things. And that's not an individualistic undertaking only. It has something to do with the community of faith of which we are all a part. And if you're worried all about your own salvation all the time and how you think about this and what God wants you to do, then it's very difficult to move out of that into an understanding that you can't do this by yourself. You need God and we need each other. That's why we have church. That's why we have a church evolve over time. And here's another hobby horse I'll briefly ride, but this is for Episcopalian 101. There's a lot of literature that has now been published over the last 50 or 60 years from uh, the Nag Hammadi Library, from all of these places that talk about the Gospel of Judas, uh, all of the uh, Gnostics. The reason they didn't get into the canon of the New Testament was, A, because they were much uh, more recent than the stuff that's in the canon of the New Testament at present number one, and number two, the brand of Christianity that they advocated was all I, 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 me, 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 and that's why it resonates so much with so many people today, your own personal enlightenment, you know, self-esteem, whatever it might be, instead of saying, I'm plugged into God's healing, saving power, and I somehow am required for God's plan for the cosmos, and I need to exercise some personality, some self giving around all that in some ways. I thought I'd say something to you at the end about uh, a way of saying, you know, look at your life in a new way, uh, turn around, uh, how do I put it in my hands? And share with you, I've done this before. I, there's a, met, a, a method of prayer that I have used all uh, for, oh, for most of my ministry, and it comes from an era in France in the 17th century a time of hair-raising piety but this method is called you know there are different methods of prayer when you when you go to seminary at least the one I went to you have to take a class it's sort of like introduction to how to say your prayers 1a so the teacher talked about all the ways of doing it so we talked about the Ignatian method, you know, St. Ignatius Loyola, about the various ones. One of the ones uh, we talked about that I like is called the Sulpician method. And it comes from a group of clergy in Paris who ultimately in their religious community, their quasi-religious community, uh, their vocation or apostolate is teaching seminarians, teaching in school, and there's a church in Paris, some of you may have been, it's got a good organ in it called Saint-Sulpice. So the supation method, uh, and I use this every morning when I get up. And here's how it goes, without doing too much disservice to it in a breathless tour. Jesus before my eyes in adoration, Jesus in my heart in communion, and Jesus in my hands in cooperation. So usually that flows out of thinking about something, right? Thinking about some spiritual issue or life issue or whatever it is. And how do I take then the thinking and the resolution that comes out of the thinking and put it before my eyes, in my heart, and in my hands? Make some resolution for the day. What is it that I'm going to do? Another... Uh, related family of, uh, in the spiritual tradition I've spoken about comes from St. Francis de Sales. He was the Bishop of Geneva in 1604. And he wrote a little book for noble women called The Introduction to the Devout Life. And in this book, he taught them How to make a meditation, what we call a discursive meditation, not like Father Keating centering prayer, just listening for the still small voice, but making a formal meditation. And after you do this, you make a resolution out of this meditation. It could come from meditating on a a reading from the Bible. It can come uh, on some spiritual reading that you're doing. It can come from some reflection that you need to do about your life situation and how you're going to do it and how you think God ought to be part of that and how you want to cooperate with it. And then he said to the noble ladies, when you make a resolution, what you need to do is to create a spiritual nosegay, which is a little bouquet. So noble ladies walking in their garden usually picked some flowers, right? And put it in a little bouquet and carried it around in 17th century France as they walked. And maybe if there was something a little odoriferous, you could put it up to your nose. But what St. Francis de Sales said, you figure out a way to remind yourself throughout the day what it is that you resolve to do. And think back on that, what you decided, what you're going to do. Jesus in my hands in cooperation. So this week, pray for that during Advent, it will allow you to keep Jesus before your eyes, in your heart and in your hands, in all that you do. Amen.